0: Hey guys, welcome to my podcast episode, Layers in Media, a perspective. I am your host, Ayusha Sala. I don't know if um, you guys listened to my first episode on Joker, but basically I started the episode talking about how difficult it was to start a podcast. Yeah, I'm learning. I've been learning this past month that doing the second episode of a podcast is just as if not more so difficult. It was like, I just... I felt like I was going through this giant mental battle of self doubt. Like I hadn't, I knew I had done the first episode. I was that person who put in the work and learned the skills and everything. But I went into the planning for the second episode and all of a sudden I just got hit with this giant wave of self doubt. And I looked at that first episode and all all of a sudden i didn't believe that it was me like i i was like yeah that was a different person that's not me i i definitely can't do that again that self doubt has been plaguing every step of this journey into actually recording the second episode. And if you're listening to this, it's a freaking miracle because it means I actually finished editing the second episode, which God knows how long that will take. But uh, I was I was going through the this giant mental battle and really struggling to record the second episode and I'm currently reading this book called uh, Still Writing the Perils and Pleasures of a Creative Life by Danny Shapiro. And when I was At the beginning of going through this whole process of self-doubt, I came across this excerpt that she wrote, and it goes like this. Whether you are a writer just mustering up the nerve to sign up for your first weekend workshop, or filling out your MFA applications, or one gazing moodily out from a big poster in the window of your local Barnes & Noble, you are far from alone in this business of granting yourself the permission to do your work. Masters of the form quake before the page. They often feel hopeless and despairing. They may also fall prey to petty musings. They have days in which they simply can't get out of their own way. I read that and was shook because I swear it was like the universe had decided to let me know, okay, Aisha, you need to chill the F out. You are in fact not alone. Everyone and their mother has gone through this. You just need to get it done. So that was that was a crazy moment for me. <clears throat> so here I am getting it done. And this second episode of this podcast, I am going to be focusing on the film V for Vendetta. I know I'm going a little bit back in time, specifically to 2005, but I just, I think this movie is incredible i mean it is my favorite superhero movie of all time and this was done in 2005 which means there have been a good like several dozen superhero movies since then that could have taken its place but they really haven't i'm the level of political and social commentary the the level of symbolism in this movie the acting the directing the style it It's all just completely unparalleled in anything that I've seen these days. So yeah, definitely check it out if you haven't seen it. And if you have seen it, then you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about because it's just this one giant sensation of a movie. And really, it's incredible for the time that it was released. I mean, it's 2005, right? So we're in year two of Bush's second term in office, and we are two years into the illegal invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. And to think about the commentary that this movie is spilling out about Muslims and about um, the persecution of minorities. It's just incredible that this movie was even allowed to be made at that time because it's such a, a giant critique on governments and their crimes. So yeah, huge recommendation, definitely worth a good three hours. I'm, I'm definitely not going to talk for three hours, but it's worth that kind of conversation, worth that kind of time because of how much it offers. Anyway, it was, yes, created in the year 2005 and the director... Uh, His name is James McTeague, and when I was doing my research into this, uh, I learned that this was James McTeague's directorial debut, his first film that he ever directed as the main guy, and I could not believe that information when I read it, because the film is so masterfully done, so perfect, that I could not believe this was a first-timer kind of guy. And then I looked a little bit more into his career, and I learned that he was an assistant director. Uh, on several other productions. He was an assistant director for, get this, The Matrix Trilogy, which explains how he developed a relationship with Hugo Weaving. Amazing, and he was an assistant director for Star Wars: Attack of the Clones, which explains how he met Natalie Portman. And then it was kind of like those connections that he made came together to collaborate on V for Vendetta, and the result was amazing. Yeah, so I mentioned um, one of the main actors is Natalie Portman. You would know her um, from movies like Star Wars, Black Swan, Leon the Professional. The movie that I saw just recently with her in it uh, is called Jackie, actually, and she plays. Jackie Kennedy. And she actually gives a stunning performance, mostly throughout the film. She's being interviewed after JFK's death, but the film jumps back and forth between when JFK was alive during the actual day where she witnessed his death and after like the the healing process after. And She just does such an incredible job, which is really difficult, I think, especially for such a known historical figure. And then um, the other main actor in the film is Hugo Weaving, who is one of my absolute favorites. Hugo Weaving is a master at delivering monologues. That's what makes him one of my favorites. And he, of course, delivers plenty of excellent monologues in V for Vendetta. Do you guys also remember that monologue? that he delivers when he's talking to Morpheus in the first Matrix film, where he's basically establishing an argument determining what humans would actually be classified as within the laws of nature. Like, you know, humans aren't mammals. They are, in fact, a virus. Oh my god, such an amazing monologue. I freaking love Hugo Weaving. And then I remembered That he actually gave a monologue in Lord of the Rings about the failures of the race of man. And then in V for Vendetta, he gives multiple monologues about the failures of government and the failures of the people to keep their governments in line. And I'm just like, dang, Hugo Weaving is dark always giving monologues, criticizing humanity, but I love him for it and I never want him to stop. So, yeah. All right. I'm actually going to structure this podcast episode the exact way that I um, structured the Joker episode. So I'm going to separate it into segments talking about the epic moments, then talking about uh, the gut punches and then breaking down the themes at the very end. But let me just say, even though I've made that decision to stick with that structure, this movie is in fact one giant gut punch and one giant epic moment it's it's really silly of me to have break broken it down into several because if i'm being honest It's just insanely epic every single second. That's what's amazing about a a movie like this is it's not boring at all. It constantly is grabbing your attention and grabbing your focus and making you think and making you look at your own society and your own government and kind of like reacting with horror like, oh my gosh, I think that's happening. I think we need to stop the government now. Really just an, an amazing work of art. Anyway, first epic moment. Is obviously V's entrance into saving Evie Hammond. Evie Hammond is uh, being assaulted by these fingermen, who are basically like the guards of the society—Nazis, the really. And V is, V starts uh, delivering these great lines, and then he pulls out his sword and he he kills these men in this epic little battle or scuffle, really, for him. And then he invites Evie to an orchestra and. You know, V takes her to the top of this building and he starts acting like the conductor of an orchestra. So he brings out the baton and he starts waving his arms and all of a sudden, Evie hears the music and the music starts spilling out from the speakers on the streets and it starts raising in volume and all of a sudden the building in front of them blows up. Specifically the, the, the building known as the Old Bailey, which if you're not familiar with British architecture or British history, the Old Bailey is the central criminal court of England. And, and at some point, um, you know, V shouts, you know, here comes the crescendo. And the the bombs that he has set off blow up uh, the statue of Lady Justice or Madam Justice, which is a statue of a woman with balance scales in one hand and the sword in the other. A symbol, a classic symbol of justice. And him blowing it up to this music is just this insanely epic scene that's so symbolic of, of what he is trying to accomplish. He's trying to wake the country up and make them recognize that justice is dead justice has not existed in this country for decades and it's time the people were made aware of it and you know he delivers this line while the building is blowing up where he's like you know lady justice has failed us so we're we're going to get rid of her just for a bit and it's just i don't know it's it's amazing and oh my god yeah this stunning very first epic moment um the second epic moment is v's speech on the emergency broadcasting system to all of london this speech is everything it is such an incredible how would you how would you say it it's such an incredible uh at addressing of the problems that the society had, and you know, during this scene, he's broadcasting on an emergency system, so it's playing on every television in every room in every bar. And all of a sudden, you see all of these civilians, whether it's a family in their house or whether it's a group of people hanging out in the bar, and they're just watching this guy talk about all of the problems that they know exist, but they're not willing to address. So he's talking about how you guys let the government uh, form the the way it has you guys were so scared of everything that was happening that you let this psychopath of a man into office, and you elected him, and and you let him get get away with murder, and you let him persecute the minorities, and you th- and 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 at some point you just decided that you were going to remain silent because that was the easiest thing to do. And this speech is so incredible. I I specifically memorized this speech for an acting class in college because of how epic it was. Like the the teacher in the class was like, yeah, you guys choose a monologue. That was the one I chose. I didn't choose anything from Shakespeare or anything like that. I chose V's speech during the emergency broadcast. One of the best things I ever did in my life. But yeah, so epic. Number three for the epic moments is V killing the bishop. Okay. First of all, the way that scene started with him doing this leap down the roof of the building to access the bishop was freaking amazing. It was so cool. It was literally like seeing a comic book novel come to life. Like if you actually have ever read the graphic novel, you'll find that the movie does a great job in imitating some of the exact illustrations. And it's just so crazy to think about because obviously they're drawings and obviously the drawings are drawing something that's not usually physically feasible, but for this they had to do it and it was just so epic and okay so during the the killing of the bishop something that was really crazy to me was the scene is playing out in part through the audio of a surveillance fan so there's these two guys in a surveillance fan that are constantly listening to everything the bishop does and one of the guys is like oh it's children's hour at the, at the abbey turn it up think about how crazy that is so they know that the Bishop is a pedophile. They know that he constantly has access to children and they're joking about it in this in the van. like they know what's happening and and they're just listening. I could not believe how damning that visual critique is when like when you see it in a movie and you you see it like presented to you like this is, This is like obviously a fictional movie, but it's revealing a very horrific truth, which is that thousands of people knew what was happening in the Catholic Church. They knew the children that were being traumatized and they accepted it. They were like, let him have their fun. And this movie really brings that to light with this scene, specifically with V killing the bishop. The bishop who begs for mercy, but we know for a fact never gave any out, despite the religion that he is preaching to his people. So yeah. Definitely an epic moment. Definitely um, just a crazy scene in general to see like that kind of symbolism, that kind of social and religious critique layered into um, a violent scene. Really, fourth epic moment was seeing the copy of the Quran in Gordon Dietrich's house. It's so um, it's so interesting because he's showing Evie around to all of the the treasures that he's kept away and the treasures that he's preserved despite the government trying to erase any sign of Islam or any sign of Muslims. And Evie Hammond goes into like his room where he keeps all of the contraband stuff. And there is a Quran in this glass case just preserved. And she turns to him and she's like, you know, are you muslim and he's like, no, I'm I'm in television. And then he explains, I don't need to be muslim to find its imagery beautiful or its poetry moving. And it was so amazing because you have to understand this movie was released in 2005. That was the start, the height, the beginning of this giant media storm just dehumanizing muslims and to have this movie made and to have this scene where it's so simplified, like I don't need to be Muslim to understand the beauty of it. It's such a revolutionary moment to have in the media, especially at that time. I remember it really affected me because, well, I don't know, I just, to see all of the different, uh, you know, messages about Muslims in the media. And then to have that in a film was really a powerful moment for me personally as a Muslim. Anyway, yeah, uh, definitely an epic scene. It's actually really, um, it's an epic scene, but it's um, connected to a, a very, a really tragic moment because later on in the film, Gordon actually gets taken in for questioning because of something that he does, which we'll discuss in a moment. But V reveals that he wouldn't have been killed except that they found the Quran in his house. And that was what justified the execution of this character eventually in the film. And that was just crazy because it established just how dangerous it is for someone to show an appreciation or a love for an ideology or a religion that does not fit within the paradigm that the government is trying to construct for its civilians. So... Really an epic moment for sure. And an epic for the actual society that they create in the film. Epic for the actual time that we were living through in 2005. Okay. Epic moment number five. Delia narrating the explosion at Lark Hill, the destruction of the Lark Hill facility and V emerging from the fire and the reflection of his angry survival in Delia's terrified eyes. So basically Delia is the scientist who was conducting the experiments on the people who were brought to Lark Hill, the people who didn't fit into the heterosexual, Christian, white, British, purist kind of society that the government was trying to construct. And she's conducting these experiments on all these innocent people and all of a sudden that backfires because somehow V has found a way to destroy the entire facility. And just watching that scene of Delia's horror as she sees her own creation rise up against her. And if you listen to Delia's narrating of the entire moment, there's this sense of foreshadowing, like she knows that All of the wrong that she was committing was going to come back and it was going to kill her and it was going to kill her in the form of V going in to put to work his vendetta, to put into play his vendetta against these people who should have known better. And it's just so visually epic. I mean, to see the actress's face get this close up shot and then to see the reflection of V just naked and burned and angry just in her eyes was so amazing to see. Definitely an epic moment. Epic moment number six, uh, Inspector Finch questioning the government. Inspector Finch is actually an interesting character. I don't know why this didn't register the first several times I watched this movie, but I went back to watch this movie recently and Inspector Finch is actually in the movie, more so than Natalie Portman. Uh, Inspector Finch is played by the actor Stephen Rhea. And one of the important character developments throughout the film is watching Inspector Finch, who is an authority figure within the government working as the guy who solves crimes, right? So this is the character that he is in the beginning. And slowly, as he is going through the motions of uh, investigating V and investigating Evie Hammond, he starts peeling back the layers of crime that his government is guilty of and he starts changing his own opinions like he he doesn't know if what he he believes in what he does anymore and he did he doesn't know if the government that he's working for is actually worth the work and worth the belief. And it's such an epic moment to see him start questioning that, to see him start questioning the system that he has served so well for years. And he specifically says, you know, he's he's talking about all of these different horrific incidents that have happened throughout the history that has led up to the government being this fascist and the, the society being this scared. And he Establishes a question for the partner that he's working with, and he says, "That's the question. If our own government was responsible for what happened at Saint Mary's, if our own government was responsible for the deaths of almost a hundred thousand people, would you really want to know?" And I just thought that was such powerful moment because he has his suspicions. He has all of the evidence that he's been looking at. He's been looking at what was being done at Lark Hill. He's been looking at what happened with the children at St. Mary's and the poisoning of the water. And, And all of a sudden he is terrified of the reality that he has been working for the bad guy this entire time. But he poses the question, would you really want to know if your government was responsible for all of these horrific crimes? And I thought it was such an interesting curveball because the way the the monologue was going, you would expect him to say, would you... Would you really want to be a part of that government or would you really want to be a part of that society? No. Would you really want to know your government was doing that or would you want to remain ignorant and oblivious? And I think that's a question that resonates a lot with everyone, really. I mean, how many of you as as Americans want to know all the crimes the american government has committed i mean just looking at the crimes that have been exposed you know in flint michigan the poisoning of the water the governor allowing that to happen the children who are going to be damaged by what happens what's been happening in flint this entire time i mean we do know that it's the government and it's horrifying how much is the government hiding that you want to remain ignorant of. I don't know. It's a very powerful message. Huge question to deliver in 2005. Consider when nobody really knew the truth about Iraq and Afghanistan, the fact that there was in fact no weapons of mass destruction. We're talking about a time when, when people still felt that those countries were guilty enough to justify the invasion of the countries. That's an insane question to pose to the country at that time through this film. It's so amazing to me, really. All right. Epic moment number seven, Gordon's last episode for his show. Gordon Dietrich is like basically the comedic late night show host kind of character. Uh, And it's really incredible how this movie shows the use of comedy to reveal truth. So during the episode, you know, he's interviewing the chancellor and he's, you know, he does the little skit where V comes on set. But when you when you take off V's mask, it's actually the chancellor under that mask. And it's like this incredible symbolic episode episode where they're revealing that V the terrorist is in fact Chancellor Sutler and and you know the terrorist is the government and it's just like this crazy episode but it's also like an incredible commentary on just how much we rely on comedy to reveal the truth. I mean Trevor Noah and Stephen Colbert the fact that they use their platforms, or even SNL. SNL has some pretty crazy political skits, if you think about it, ridiculing the people in power, talking about important issues, but also making people laugh at the same time. That's Gordon's role in this movie. And it's so epic to see him use his position of power to give people this information while making them laugh it's amazing to see actually like all the different civilians and all the different people watching just how much joy it brings them but also how much truth he's delivering to them in a in a way that works with their reality right and Evie has this quote in the movie. She's talking about her father and what her father used to say. And the quote was, writers use lies to reveal truth while politicians use them to cover them up. And... You know, I think writers, artists, comedians, so so many people within the creative field use whatever medium they can to reveal truths. And that's what's so epic and so powerful about Gordon's last episode. He's trying to reveal to people that the Chancellor is in fact the terrorist that they're scared of. It's not V, it's not this person that's masked and caped. It's in fact someone that we know very well, someone whose face is plastered on every poster, on every street street. The guy that wants us to love him, but in fact, is the guy that has destroyed society as we know it. Very epic. Epic moment number eight. Oh my gosh. The dominoes being laid out, paralleled with the V masks being delivered to every home in London. So cool. Oh my God. The whole dominoes scene. Okay. Just the symbolism of dominoes, right? Setting up all of the pieces in place, just perfectly. And if one is just out of place just a little bit, then it's going to ruin the whole thing. But if you put every piece in place and you set it up just perfectly, then everything is going to go according to plan. And it's the symbolism of using the dominoes and V setting them up and then allowing them to crash to show the V symbol, the, the circle with the V in it, and then to have the actual V masks delivered to every home. Almost as if this is the last piece of the puzzle, right? An invitation to every single member of society to join in on the revolution that he has set up for them. It's so epic. It's so cool. And visually, it's just stunning. And of course, during the epic montage of the dominoes being set up and the the masks being delivered across London, there is... This amazing monologue that Inspector Finch is delivering about connection, how he's seen what the 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 horror of what happened at Saint Mary's, and he saw the the persecution of the homosexuals and the minorities and the Muslims, and he's seen the rise of this politician, and all of a sudden he's seeing all these pieces connected, and he's seeing the inevitability of it. Like when you push a society to the brink of its sanity, when you push people to accept. all of this pain and all of this injustice and all of this horror, you get what you deserve. And that's what this moment was culminating to. And it was just, it's, it was really amazing to see like the, the bright visuals of the dominoes being set up to the calm tone of Inspector Finch's voice. Amazing juxtaposition, amazing contrast, definitely epic. Epic moment number nine, Chancellor Sutler's broadcast playing to a montage of empty rooms. No one is listening. I loved this because this was basically the Chancellor's last chance To grasp at any strings of power that he might have left, because V has done an incredible job of establishing the revolution. And when you see all of those rooms empty, see that the senior citizen center and the bar and the family's home, they're all empty. It means that the revolution has truly begun. And it's not because of one man. It's because of every citizen in society standing up and saying no more. Totally epic epic moment number 10 creedy versus v the only thing that you and i have in common mr creedy is we're both about to die. the whole standoff with creedy and v was amazing because it was basically creedy came with 20 soldiers with machine guns and they shoot at v just standing there and it's and then all of a sudden, all the shooting stops because they think, okay, no way, this guy is gonna handle everything. And then V is hunched over from all the bullets. He stands up, he he cocks his head over to them, and then he's like, My turn. And, and then he just does this epic thing where he brings out his, his knives and he starts, oh my God, so amazing. This is like one of those things where I really love when comic book art meets film visuals, because it's so cool. Like when you read the comic books, the visuals are are amazing, but you think that they're like there's no way it's just it's just an illustrator getting really creative with knife work and stuff like that. But when you see it played out in film, it's like the people who who filmed it obviously had a genuine appreciation for the art in the graphic novel and they weren't about to pass up an opportunity to bring it to life and i appreciate that so much because the scene was amazing just to see this one man with knives just cut down these 20 soldiers and then eventually to get to creedy was just amazing Definitely one of the coolest uh, battle scenes ever, in my opinion. Epic moment number 11, Uh, everyone dressed as V making their way to Parliament and Parliament blowing up. I just thought that was one of the greatest revolutionary visuals the movie had to offer. It was so incredible to see all of these people marching towards this blockade. I mean, these guards are there with their guns, ready to shoot at these civilians, when ordered, but no orders are actually coming through because V has killed everyone in power. So all of a sudden these soldiers stand down and they let these civilians dressed in V masks pass through. And it's like, okay, the army is powerless because it no longer has a power structure to adhere to. And the civilians are the ones in control. The civilians are the ones who get to determine where they go and when they go. And they go to the parliament building as a tribute. It's almost like it's V's work come to life. It's V's dream come to life. He set up all the dominoes and they were there to pick up the pieces when it was done. Such an incredible ending for sure. All right, segment number two, the gut punches. All right, the first gut punch I am going to discuss is Evie's story about her parents when she was telling V the story of her parents being taken by the government It was truly just tragic, like seeing the younger version of herself have to watch as her mother quickly tells her to get onto the bed and to hide onto the bed. And then uh, the mom gets beaten by the guards who invade their home. And then uh, she gets a black bag shoved over her face as she's taken away by the authorities is just an insane scene to watch. And it's so hard to watch because these things traumatize children. It's really it's A gut punch because Evie says this line where uh, she says it was like those black bags erased them from the face of the earth. And the government in the movie has this notorious um, reputation of just black bagging any citizen who talks against the government and nobody knowing where they're being taken. Like they just they're gone. And the thing about that is... It's just, there's so many moments throughout human history where this is such a relatable, such a relevant thing to bring up about governments just stealing civilians from the safety of their own home and never telling anyone what happened to them. Like, I just read this book. The author, her name is Yagi Yassi, and she uh, wrote this book called Homegoing. And in One of the scenes were like in 1800s America. And during that time, the government passed something called the Fugitive Slave Act. And the thing about this was okay, so if you were a black American, you had to be carrying around papers proving that you were, in fact, born free and therefore. not someone to be taken by the authorities and then sold back into the South. But all anyone ever had to do if they wanted to make money was they could kidnap a black person, a black child, a black mother, anyone, tear up those papers that prove they were free and then sell them. And that was it. And so, so many families throughout America, throughout the North, suddenly had family members disappearing and they had no idea what happens to them. Also, when Bush passed the Patriot Act um, at the beginning of the decade, right, we're talking about within the Patriot Act, there is an act that the government is allowed to do. They called it rendition, basically meaning they can take anyone without ever giving any explanation as to why they're being taken and then send them to black sites in foreign countries uh, where they're going to be tortured for information. Guantanamo Bay is a very real place. It's a very real scary reality for the Muslim American community. And people literally would be taken. We'd have no idea what happens to them. We'd have no idea when they would be coming back, if they ever would be coming back. And it's just seeing that in a movie, seeing that as a part of Evie Hammond's reality is such a shock. And it's such a gut punch because it's so relevant to Tactics that governments use in reality Even what's happening in China right now With the Uyghur Muslims Where the Chinese government is blackbagging Muslims And putting them into concentration camps And brainwashing them into believing That Islam is a mental illness It's amazing how relevant How um, honest this movie is Considering that it's based off of a graphic novel From decades ago Gut punch number two Gordon's reveal about his sexuality um, When he's showing Evie Hammond Like Evie Hammond is apologizing to him for putting him in such a dangerous position because she's technically a a fugitive from the law and and the authorities are looking for her. And he tells her, you know, if the authorities ever come into my house, you're going to be the least of my worries. And then he reveals to her the room where he has, you know, forbidden art and he has the forbidden Quran. And then there are images in a back room of just like homosexual art. And that's like just the tiniest detail that reveals that Gordon is in fact a homosexual. Even though he has been parading around as a heterosexual this entire time, and she's so confused, and he and he explains, you know, this is how I've had to survive this world, this society, this government. I had to hide who I was, and he says this thing during this monologue where he says, "When you wear a mask for so long, you forget who you are beneath it." And it's such an amazing line to put into the movie because it. Directly contrasts what V is. You know, V is a man in a mask, but that mask is him. He is the revolution. That mask is who he is and what he's doing and why he's doing it and his belief. And then there's Gordon, who he has a face. He's walking around. People know what he looks like, but it's just a mask that he's showing everyone because he can't really be comfortable in his own sexuality. He can't really expose what he feels and what he really wants and who he really wants to love. And I just thought that was a huge gut punch. It was. This is amazing because it's kind of steering away from the original graphic novel, which I actually love. I love that the movie adapted itself to to the time that it was made in instead of going back. Like the graphic novel was perfect for its time and then the movie was perfect for 2005. Like in the actual graphic novel, there's no mention of Muslims or anything like that. That's specific to the movie. There's no mention of... Um, Gordon being a uh, homosexual in the novel because, in fact, he's heterosexual in the novel. But it works for the film because it establishes the gravity of what the government is doing to its civilians. Even the people who escaped the raids, even the people who managed to not be detected as homosexual or as an immigrant or as a Muslim, they are still living in a prison. And that's what Gordon establishes. And that's what makes it such a gut punch. For sure. Gut punch number three, uh, the conversation between Delia, the scientist, and V. Basically, it's that scene where V is in her bedroom and she wakes up and it's almost like she knows that he's there to kill her and and she's so calm about it. And it's interesting because she she offers an apology it's like she, she knows what she was doing was wrong. And, and she, she tells her, tells him, I never intended to hurt anyone. And, and, you know, V is very calm when he explains to her that your intentions don't change what you actually did. Because what you actually did was you made me a monster. You killed all of those people, all of those innocent people that you tortured with your chemicals and your experiments. And it's interesting because Delia's regret is so sincere. And, you know, she asks him, is it, too late to apologize. And V explains, no, it's never too too late to apologize. And it's interesting because V must have had this intuition that Delia was regretful because she was the only person who was regretful, considering every person person in authority who was responsible for what happened to V and the rest of those prisoners. But she was the only one who was regretful. And it made the death that V gave her uh, painless. Everyone else had quite a violent death. But with Delia, it was as simple as him injecting her with a serum when she was sleeping and her peacefully going to sleep. And I thought that was interesting, The, the element of regret and the element of mercy that V offered her despite everything that she had done. And I thought that was a major emotional gut punch for sure. Gut punch number four is Gordon's arrest. Gordon's arrest was really hard to watch because he had put himself on the line with the comedy show that he did. And he was the only thing stopping Evie. Like he was protecting Evie. This was this was Evie's last shot at getting protection. And Gordon is scared because he knows the authorities are coming and they're coming in hot. And he tells Evie to get onto the bed and to hide onto the bed. And it was almost as if Evie Evie's childhood trauma of watching her mother get beaten and blackbagged was repeating itself, except this time it was Gordon. And Gordon wasn't some measly activist who could easily be forgotten or could easily be erased from history. He was a prominent figure in society and he was still being treated the same way. It's like nobody can be protected from this giant fascist regime that could swallow up anyone. So that was definitely, oh my God. And then right after or her watching Gordon get blackbagged she gets out of the house but then she gets blackbagged so that was a huge emotional gut punch and the thing is when you're first watching the film you you can't you don't expect anything that happens so i know like the third time when watching it i know who it is that that is actually blackbagging her but it's still just horrific seeing it actually happen because it's Evie's worst fear, like for her to face the same fate as her parents and just go into the unknowing violence that is the fascist regime behind closed doors. Gut punch number five is definitely Valerie's autobiography. The beautiful thing about Valerie's autobiography is that it is an exact replication of what was done in the graphic novel. I mean, they stayed true to every line and to every moment and it just it shows how much they wanted to do justice to Valerie's story and there's this line that Valerie has at the beginning of her autobiography where she's slipping the paper into um Evie's cell and and she wants Evie to know her story and she talks about how God is in the rain and how she's able to see the beauty in her world even despite all of the pain and all of the discrimination and all of the hatred that she is getting from her parents, from her society, and all she wants to do. She didn't want to be limited in who she who she was truly in love with. And everyone around her was insisting on hating her for who she was. And it's just an incredible autobiography for her to remember all of the beauty in her life, despite the pain that she is going through being tortured in the cell right next to Evie. And there's this other part of her autobiography where she's watching this disintegration of society around her. And she says, you know, I remember when different became dangerous. I still don't understand why they hate us so much. I love that line so much because you know it's so easy to see in different societies with different governments how quickly hatred can become the authority in making decisions for entire societies and to see what happens to Valerie, to see what happens to her lover, Ruth, is so tragic because it's the story of Muslims in America. It's the story of Muslims in China. It's the story of Kashmiris in India. You know, all of these different governments issuing the allowance of hatred and issuing the discrimination based on the differences. And this is the story that Valerie is telling. It feels personal and it feels intimate, but it also feels painfully universal. The other thing that makes this scene a gut punch are the little clues embedded in Valerie's autobiography that show V's connection to the whole story. Like, for example, Ruth growing Scarlett Carson's, the kind of rose that V leaves after the death of each authority figure that he targets, or the images of Valerie being processed and tortured at Lark Hill, matching the images from Delia's narration when she's remembering her experiments at Lark Hill. And it's just like all of these clues showing that this was V's experience and V is giving Evie that same experience that he went through. And I just, I remember not recognizing it the first time I watched the film, but recognizing it the times after and realizing how sad it was and, 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 yeah oh my gosh definitely a gut punch for sure to see that it's right in front of her face that this isn't real for evie Evie, this was real for v and this was what he had to endure oh my god and also like when she's reading the end of the autobiography where valerie is speaking directly to her even though she doesn't know evie and watching evie's face as she reads valerie's unconditional love for her i just Natalie Portman's acting in that moment is so believable and so intense that you just, you cry with her because the love is so sincere and it's like Valerie's legacy as a character. Like, I know the world is dark and cruel but she has this hope and she has this love to give Evie and it just kind of pours off of the paper and into Evie's soul. And you just you just see the power of that moment and it's definitely a gut punch. Next gut punch is Evie walking out of the cell and realizing that the guard is a mannequin. She is just in shock because she thought she was being taken behind the chemical sheds to be shot. And then all of a sudden the guy says, oh, then you are no longer afraid and you are free. And then he just leaves. And then she's so confused. She walks out into the hallway and she realizes that the guard that she's terrified of, that she's been terrified of, is in fact a mannequin. And And then she walks through this hallway and then she walks into V's shadow gallery. And V is standing there calmly waiting for her to enter. And she's just, it's amazing to watch Natalie Portman's emotional escalation throughout this scene because it starts with a very believable, like, first of all, it starts with her calm, right? She knows she's going to die and she's calmly accepted that. And then she gets the shock of none of it being real and so she's just speechless and then she sees V and she and she's all of a sudden just she feels this anger and this hatred build up in her and she starts lashing out at V and V explains to her "Yes, I thought it was hate too hate was all I knew it built my world imprisoned me taught me how to eat how to drink how to breathe I thought I'd die with all the hate in my veins but then something happened and she it just doesn't to want to listen and she she hates him up. and she thinks he's evil and, and all of a sudden, like it escalates her. to the point where she gets an asthma attack and all of a sudden she can't breathe because she, she can't Stop. handle the mountain of emotions that is just crashing down on her. And V takes her up to the roof and to be out in the air, to be out in the fresh air, and it's nighttime, and it's raining, and it starts raining, and... You know, Evie, she just walks into the rain in this little, you know, shift of of clothing that she's wearing. And she just, she remembers Valerie's autobiography and she remembers Valerie saying, God is in the rain. And so she just lifts her hands up and she just embraces the miracle that is the rain and the beauty of it and she's embracing the freedom of it and it's amazing because V is watching her as she's having this moment and he's remembering His experience of getting out of Lark Hill and surviving that explosion. And so the movie starts paralleling the shots of him emerging from the fire and just putting his arms up in anger and hatred. And then seeing Evie put her hands up to embrace the rain and there being relief and just... Tragedy on her face, and it's such a gut punch. I I remember when I first watched it, I literally couldn't breathe with her. Like I was having an asthma attack with her because I just I couldn't believe everything that was being revealed, and I couldn't believe the emotions of it. Natalie Portman was definitely at her best in that particular moment because it was so powerful, and she did it so well and so believably. I swear, I saw Evie Hammond, and I didn't see Natalie Portman in that moment. Next gut punch is the reveal that valerie was real because you know after the revelation that uh v had tortured her and put her through this whole simulation to make her fearless she thought that the autobiography that valerie had slipped into her cell was fake and that v had written it but then v reveals to her that valerie was in fact very real and he, she was what saved him when he was in the cell next to Valerie. And I just thought that was a huge gut punch. And there's like um, a tribute that he has built for her within the shadow gallery. And it shows like the movie posters of the movies that she was in. Cause she was an actress and it shows the Scarlet Carson's that he grows for her. And it's just like this shrine that he pays homage to in order to show his love for her. And to kind of keep her legacy going on. And I thought that was definitely a gut punch because it we see the emotional journey for Evie, but we only get glimpses of the emotional journey for V. And this was a very hard glimpse into the reality that V had to endure. Next gut punch is Evie leaves. She cannot stay in the shadow gallery anymore and V understands that. But as soon as she leaves, V breaks down. He breaks the mirror in front of him. He tears off the mask and he just starts crying. And this is definitely a major gut punch because V has a plan and that plan ends on November because he knows that's where the end game is, where he's going to kill everyone that he needs to kill. He's going to blow up the parliament. And there's almost like this understanding that he is not going to survive the revolution that he has started. But despite that knowledge, he has spent this past year, this last year of his life, making Evie into the strong woman he knows she can become. So instead of allowing himself to really experience a love that Evie was willing to give him, to really experience joy and friendship, he forced himself to do all those things to Evie, to give her a better life, to make her a stronger person. And it cost him it cost him everything because it hurt him so much to go through each process at each moment of that process and i think seeing him allow him himself to break down after she leaves was just it was so hard because you see just how much he lost in doing that to evie regardless of how much she gained. Definitely a hard one for me. Uh, Next gut punch is uh, one of the finger men killing the little girl in the glasses wearing the mask it's so interesting because um the little girl she's this actress she's this character that appears quite frequently throughout the film but she's kind of like the face of the next generation i think that was the purpose of her appearing in the film so many times and she's the little girl that's watching the television and she's the little girl that's watching v and and listening to his speech and being inspired by uh his speech and when the Fingerman kills her, she's actually graffitiing a wall in the city with V's symbol. So essentially what I took it as is she was a symbol of the next generation becoming a part of the revolution. So when the Fingerman kills her, it's almost as if there's this giant loss of this life that could have been lived and was going to be lived well if it wasn't for this fascist government killing anything and everything that didn't step in line. But it's also incredible because of what her death does in terms of inspiring the rest of the people to really embrace their anger and really rise up against the authority that has taken advantage of them and murdered them and hurt them so much throughout these years. And so yeah, just like that whole process was a gut punch because I mean, how often is it that a revolution or a movement is built off of the loss of a life there's there's loss at the beginning of revolution and that's what this girl was in this movie and it was definitely a major gut punch for sure next gut punch for sure is um evie begging v not to go. This is just the craziest scene because first of all, the kiss, like, do you guys remember the kiss that happened during that scene? I don't know how they made this work because obviously she's kissing a mask, but somehow watching Evie kiss V and trying to convince him to stay with her and to live, it was... One of the most emotional, one of the most romantic, one of the most tragic on screen kisses I had ever seen. And it was she was kissing a mask. Like they made it work so well when it could have gone so wrong. And that's what makes the scene crazy. And it's interesting because the character V, he has this appreciation. He loves the movie, um, The Count of Monte Cristo, starring Robert Donat. And uh, what's interesting is Evie watches it with him and she shares her thoughts and says, you know, it's just sad because Edmond Dantes, he cared more about revenge than he cared about Mercedes. And so in the end, she kind of felt sorry for Mercedes. And seeing this scene where she's begging V not to go and V still chooses to go because he has to finish this thing. It's like seeing the Count of Monte Cristo paralleled in their own love story except the tragic thing is Edmund Dantes is, is not going to come back. V is not going to come back. This is going to be his death. Definitely a major gut punch. Next gut punch is V dying in Evie's arms. So V has already killed Creedy. He's killed the chancellor and he's survived that huge battle with those 20 soldiers, 20 plus soldiers, I don't know. And he's dying because he's got all of these wounds in him, but he manages to make it back to Evie before he actually dies. And it's so sad because he, because Evie, you know, is holding him in her arms and she says, V, I I don't want you to die. And he responds, that's the most beautiful thing you could have given me. Think about that line. That's the most beautiful thing you could have given me. Just the desire for him to exist, right? When he's been living this world, when he has had to fight against this government that has done everything in their power to limit his existence, to destroy his existence. There is this one woman who says... I, in fact, want you to live. And he couldn't think of anything else that was more beautiful. The simplicity of that, to just want someone to live, right? Not to tolerate someone's existence, not to allow it despite your hatred of it or your judgment of it, but to want it. Such a gut punch for sure. Uh, Oh my gosh. And then the last gut punch of all, what I am going to call the gut punch supreme of this movie. (laughs) The thing that kills me. The funny thing is, when I first watched this film, I actually didn't understand the ending because I was like a naive child And you know, okay, so the crowd of civilians with all of their V masks are watching the parliament blow up and all of a sudden everyone takes off their masks and within the crowd are all the people that have died throughout the film, whether it's Gordon or the little girl or Valerie and Ruth and just all of them, they're just standing there. And as a kid, I was like, oh my God, this is such a happy ending everybody is alive. <laughs> I can't believe. Oh my God. I was so dumb, but it was so sad. Like, so when I first watched this, I thought it was a super happy ending and I thought, yay, everybody's alive. But then like I watched it more and more and I started to understand that it's not that they were alive, but it's that a revolution immortalizes the people who are lost because of that revolution like there are faces of revolution that even in their death they still have a power to them and they and they're still alive because people remember them and and they remember their sacrifice and their struggle and they remember the revolution that they ignited in everyone else and it's so amazing because at the time that all of these faces that you loved and you lost are revealing themselves in the crowd, Evie has this monologue where Inspector Finch asks her, you know, who was he? Who was V? You know, did, did he ever reveal that information? And Evie starts saying, you know he was edmund dantes he was my mother he was my father he was my brother he was he was you he was me and it, and she starts recognizing that even though v was a man to her an important one who changed her life for the better he allowed himself, he sacrificed himself to become so much more. He became an idea. He became a revolution that sparked the change of society for the better. And that was just such, so amazing. It was definitely such a gut punch because, you know, seeing everyone who died alive in the crowd and happy and proud was just, oh my God, it was so painful, but it was so, it was also like, it was a kindness to everyone who had died, you know, because all of these people, you know, Valerie's death of, you know, being tortured in Lark Hill and then being thrown into a mass grave or Gordon's death of being beaten and then being killed, executed for a comedy show, you know, all of these things, they finally meant something because everyone else in the crowd came to watch the blowing up of Parliament. And I just thought that was such an incredible homage to what revolution means, the, the loss that revolution requires, and yet the hope that it instills in people. So amazing. Definitely a gut punch. Definitely um, a hard scene to absorb, especially when you actually understand what the director was doing and, and what they were trying to say oh my God, hurt so much when I found out. Good Lord. Okay. uh, Next segment, the breaking down of themes. This is going to be kind of like a breaking down of themes, but also like a breaking down of the societal elements within the film V for Vendetta. And I want to start with the character of Commander Prothero, uh, who is referred to as the Voice of London, essentially a Fox News equivalent, just on a more powerful scale. And it's so interesting because we're introduced to Prothero in the very beginning. Right from the bat, he establishes the reason why England prevails. And he's saying, you know, we did what we had to immigrants, Muslims, homosexuals, terrorists, disease ridden degenerates. They had to go. And he's talking to the country. The, the country is listening to these words. And it's like, He's establishing the narrative of what is acceptable and what isn't and why England prevails. England prevails because they're a God-fearing Christian community that doesn't allow any Muslims or any homosexuals to exist or any immigrants to come in or anything like that. And that's why the rest of the world is screwed over because they were accepting or tolerant or whatever. And I thought that was such an amazing element, such an amazing societal element to infuse into this fascist regi- regime that they are exploring through V for Vendetta because it. Is an essential element to any fascist regime, any uh, government, uh, any authoritarian government needs to have, quote unquote, the voice of London needs to have a Prothero that the people turn to to convince them that everything that is wrong that is happening around them is okay. It's okay that you treat Muslims like that. It's okay that you treat homosexuals like that because it's why we succeed as a country. And there's a part of that monologue where he says, you know, I'm a God-fearing English. And I'm goddamned proud of it. And it's interesting because there is this invocation of a religious superiority to justify the downfall and persecution of others. And I think you can understand like it's so dangerous when a government or a society or the strongest voices of society start spinning this narrative that it's their divine right to exist and it's their divine duty to make sure others do not exist or do not have power and i think the film masterfully highlights just how easy or 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 how you know powerful and how aggressive that narrative is and how quickly it can become the norm. Uh, And you know, it's it's amazing. We can see this happening today, now in 2019. We can see it happening in India. We can see it happening in China, even in America. It's amazing to see the different phases that America goes through. The latest one being the dehumanization of the Muslim community, but it goes even further than that. You know, the the dehumanization of the Japanese community or the dehumanization of the black Community to justify slavery, you know, all of these things that the government. There's, there's these stages where the government just insists on the differences being the evidence that they have to be treated lesser than. So the use of media to establish the social rules and the social standards is a very important social element within the film and can easily be seen in modern day, like the equivalent can easily be discerned in modern day throughout our our media channels, for sure. Another interesting um, element is instead of like the voice of London, there's also Dascombe, another character who was the media producer, who basically was the guy behind the scenes, making sure all of the news stories got out. And there's this moment where he's trying to structure a story to tell the public about the death of Prothero, because V has successfully killed Commander Prothero, aka the voice of London. And and Dascom is talking to his assistant and he's saying, you know, our job is to report the news, not fabricate it. That's the government's job. That's such a scathing critique to put in a film. You guys remember Evie's quote where her father said, you know, writers use lies to reveal the truth and politicians use lies to cover it up. That is like one of the thematic elements that is used throughout the film in different ways. And one of those ways is with Dascombe and with him saying this line, it's our job to report the news, not fabricate it. That's the government's job. There is this awareness that the government is lying, but the news The people who are delivering the news do not care. They're just reporting it. It's so interesting because look at what we are seeing now. Look at how how many news outlets were just delivering the news that Trump was running for president or delivering the news about Trump's racism or Trump's hatred against immigrants or Mexicans or Muslims or whatever. But like how rare it was for them to ask very serious questions. And then whenever there would be a reporter who would ask a serious question, they'd be banned. So they couldn't do their job. And it's so crazy to see this um, film spell it out so easily, like how news stations, they become complicit because they no longer do their own investigation, they simply report what the government is saying. And it's so it's such a tragic reality. I mean, that was literally how this country got caught up in the illegal invasion and occupation of Afghanistan and Iraq, because no media outlets, there was like one media outlet, I think it was like Night Ritter or something, but all the rest of the major media outlets were not questioning the information that the government was pouring out to them. Oh, there's weapons of mass destruction. Everybody is going is out to kill uh, Americans and threaten uh, freedom and everything like that. And but no reporters were actually reporting. No, no one was actually investigating the evidence that was being fabricated within the government, within the CIA, within the FBI, and then just like all of that fake news being poured into the media and the media just regurgitating it to the public to allow them to accept that the country was. Going into a, an expensive war that did not need to happen, and yeah, such a such a powerful element for the movie to bring out through the character of Dascombe. Also, just a side note: there are several movies that show the media's role or the media's failure in doing their part um, when it came to when it comes to like the lead up of the Iraq war and a lot of those movies like those movies include Vice with Christian Bale Shock and Awe with Woody Harrelson and James Marsden and Official Secrets with Keira Knightley they're such great movies highly recommend them because they show the true life stories of what V for Vendetta is hinting at within its own fictional film which I think is amazing one thing that I really wanted to focus on when it comes to the um, the breakdown of the themes is I wanted to focus on how the movie reveals how religion is used to deepen a government's fascism. There's a a part in the film where Inspector Finch and his partner go to meet an informant known as Rookwood. And Rookwood delivers this monologue where he says, you know, our Our story story begins begins, as these stories so often do. do With a young up-and-coming politician. He's a deeply religious man and a member of the Conservative Party is completely single-minded and has no regard for the political process. The more power he obtains, the more obvious his zealotry and the more aggressive his supporters become. Guys, if you watch this Especially movie as now, as this movie from 2005, project. you will be shocked at how relevant it is to here and now. I mean, just listen to that last line. The more power he obtains, the more obvious his zealotry and the more aggressive his supporters become. That's literally Literally the story of Trump in the making. The more racist he is, the more discriminatory he is, the more angry and violent and active his supporters become. That is the story of America now. The the, the government that Brookwood is describing in V for Vendetta, the fascist authoritarian government that is ruining hundreds of thousands of people's lives, that is, that is responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of people that's the government that they're hinting at in today's world. I mean, just look at the evidence of how often religion is used to justify violence I mean with Bush's invasion of Iraq he he uses his Christianity right he says you know oh there's there's this evil in there and Christian and it's our Christian duty to go in there and to and to eradicate it or in Saudi Arabia uh, their use of Islam to justify the execution of homosexuals because you know no tolerance whatsoever and murder is obviously acceptable because because as we're saying so and because we're using Islam to justify it. Or, um, you know, the the Buddhists slaughtering Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar because Muslims are a stain on their culture and on their religion. Or even in China, you know, the the use of communism as an ideology and rounding up the Uyghur Muslims because Islam is a mental illness that doesn't fit into the communist society or it doesn't fit well with the communist regime that that the Chinese, government is trying to build up. Or, you know, it's just the repetition of history is crazy to witness. And it's crazy to see it put so simply in V for Vendetta. That's what's so interesting about the movie is there is such a relevance there is so much truth like i that's what's so incredible about this film it manages to mesh our histories and our present day into this fictional story that somehow acts as a reflection of real human history real human presence things that are happening today and now this movie is 15 years old and it feels like it could have been made yesterday because of how truthful it is, how how the because of the critique that it offers on government and on society, and how easy it is for the masses to become complicit in the crimes the government is committing. And honestly, as long as we as humans continue to repeat these crimes, as long as we continue to allow the government to have I mean, one of the the main lines in this movie that illustrate what V is trying to accomplish is, you know, um, governments should be afraid of the people. The people should not be afraid of the government. That is the motivation behind what V is doing. The the people should be able to stand up against their government and be able to tell their government when to stop, whenever the government gets out of hand, whenever their power gets out of hand. And that message speaks just as clear today as it did in 2005 as it did in the 80s when the graphic novel was first published and it speaks just as clearly even before the graphic novel was was created this is how repetitive human history has become and this is how consistently criminal governments have become and how consistently silent people have become in allowing this to happen and this is a film about revolution this is a film about not allowing the worst to happen. And it's just, it's, definitely one of the greatest superhero films of all time. One of the greatest superhero stories because there's so much truth and there's so much meaning and there's so many layers behind his existence and the ideas that he's trying to introduce others to. That's what makes it such an amazing film. Timeless, really, if governments continue as they always have done. So yeah, that was my breakdown of V for Vendetta. You are listening to the podcast Layers in Media and I am your host. Ayesha Sala. Catch you next time.